You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. Don't you love that line in that song, uh, Once an enemy, now seated at his table? Amen. That's, a, that's a powerful line. Uh, I was thinking about, like, the way I pictured it in my mind is we know the war that's going on with Israel and Hamas. And I think... I once was Hamas. I once was an enemy. Now I'm sitting at the table. That's incredible. That 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 thought as much hatred as there is towards Hamas and in many ways rightfully so we were once the enemy. We were once them. And now we sit at the table with the one we were fighting against. What a powerful thought this morning. I pray that that will go with you this week as you think about your life, that we were once an enemy, now we're seated at the table. I don't want to give you breaking news because you'll probably hear about it this week, and you may have already heard about it, but... I didn't know if you knew that Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are dating. Has anybody heard, <laughs> anybody heard that, that news uh, that they, they're dating? I, it's, I, I, you know, maybe TMZ might show up here and take my recording and put it out there and I'll have to do some interviews that they're, uh, they're dating. The thing that I found funny about this, and again, it's, it's in our news and every, you know, every uh, news organization you go listen to, it seems to be a, a top story, is... The reaction of people has been what the reaction in this room was. Because some of you, when I just said their names, you rolled your eyes, right? <laughs> like you gave me a dirty look and you rolled your eyes because it's like, if I hear one more thing about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, I am done, right? I'm never going to do sports again. I'm never, I'm finished, right? There's this sense in our culture. And again, I feel like the same thing is happening as I'm watching sports and things. Commentators are getting tired of the Zoom shots to the suite with Taylor Swift in it. Um, That there's this sense in our culture of two reactions to this story. There's the reaction of rejection, like this is hurting football, and I just wish we'd get back to football. Then all the Swifties are like, who is Travis Kelsey, right? Like, I don't even know who that is, and they're buying his jersey and all this kind of stuff. So you got, there's this sense of of rejection, but then all those, so there's this sense of recognition, and there's certain people that are sort of building on this. Uh, I've watched a couple of music videos, the people parodies of Taylor Swift songs about Travis and Kelsey. And they're just so fun. You see memes going around about it. There's some people that are just recognizing it is what it is. It's happening. But the funny thing is there's been this, again, really sort of polarizing responses to this situation. Again, rejection. This is stupid and dumb. Why are we even talking about this? And then this other side of sort of recognition. 
Well, those two responses are the same thing that we encounter in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through chapter 14 and verse 21. As Jesus is becoming more and more known, there's this polarizing response to Jesus, either rejecting him and saying, this isn't really happening, this, he isn't really the Messiah, he isn't really the king, or there's this recognition that there is something going on there, there's something different about Jesus. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 13, we'll work from verse 53 through chapter 14 in verse 21. Matthew 13 and verse 53 begins with, and if you've been a part of our journey through the book of Matthew, these first words should be a literary clue that you're cluing into, that you're hearing. And when Jesus had finished, remember that? When Jesus had finished, is repeated five times in the book of Matthew. And all of those statements are repeated right after Jesus gives a teaching. And so Matthew outlines the book for us by these five key teachings of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives us the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. That You want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is what a life looks like for people ruled by the king of kings. And when he finishes, he says, when Jesus had finished. Then in Matthew chapter 10, we came to the commissioning of Jesus' disciples. And when he finished, in Matthew chapter 11, in verse 1, he said, Jesus finished teaching. Then we've been spending our time in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus gave parables. He started teaching in parables. Parables is a practical story with a spiritual that illustrates a spiritual truth. And so he gave us, in Matthew 13, eight Practical stories with spiritual truths. And when we come to verse 53, we come again to this literary mark that Jesus has finished teaching and now we're moving back into the narrative of Jesus' life and story. So it says in verse 53, when he finished these parables, he went away from there. And he coming to his hometown, his hometown was Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So Jesus, after finishing these parables, goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach. And as he's teaching in his hometown, the Bible says that those that are listening to him, and we'll see here in a minute, probably people that knew him from growing up, they're astonished by his teaching, meaning they're taken back by his teaching. They're thinking about the fact that Jesus hung out with them in the streets, right? They play together in the streets. Jesus would come to their house and have dinner. He would go to their house and have dinner. They're thinking about this is the person that they have grown up with. And when they hear his teaching and his works, they're astonished. They're taken back. And so here's how they respond to that with these questions. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then, where then did this man get all of these things? 
So they're seeing Jesus do these works and seeing Jesus share this wisdom, his words. And they're like, is this the same guy we grew up with? Where did he get this authority? That, that word where is not about location, Nazareth. The where is more about authority. Like as Jesus is doing these works, as Jesus is teaching, remember, he teaches as one who has authority. And so they're like, where did he get this authority from? And then you see how they respond after they're thinking through this. In verse 57, it says, and they, his hometown, took offense at him. The idea is that as they listened to Jesus' words and they watched his works and they're doubting his authority, they took offense at him. They stumbled, is the translation, over him. It was like, this, this can't be the Messiah. We ate together. We played in the streets together. He doesn't have the authority that he says he has. And so they took offense at him. They stumbled over him. They, they rejected him. So Jesus says to them a proverb. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus says usually somebody who's popularity or uh, a name is becoming known, usually the hometown's like, hey, that's my man, right? They're from our hometown. But the opposite is happening to Jesus. Rather than the people seeing and believing, the people are seeing and rejecting. They're seeing Jesus and saying, ah, he's, he's, he's not from our hometown, right? We're not going to claim him and Jesus says that's different than the proverb that you have heard, that a prophet is usually given honor in his hometown. And then we see the tragedy of this in verse 58. And Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Because they were stumbling over Jesus. Because they didn't believe that he had the authority with his works and his words, Jesus doesn't do mighty works there. He maybe did a few, and we know he was healing people, but he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Why? Because they rejected him. They didn't believe that he had the authority that he was claiming to have with his words and his works. It says then in verse chapter 14 and verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous power powers are at work in him. So Herod the Tetrarch hears about Jesus. And he hears the fame of Jesus is growing in a way because he's healing people and he's doing these miraculous works and his words have power because he has all authority in heaven and on the earth. And Herod is getting a little jealous of this. And as he's examining the fame of Jesus and thinking about his life, his mind goes back to when he beheaded John the Baptist. And so what Herod is doing is combining this sort of weird thinking of Jesus has, is John the Baptist come back to life? 
I knew I shouldn't have cut off his head. And so now Jesus is John the Baptist and he, he's coming back with authority and power. And that's why all this is happening. It's because it's just John the Baptist come back to life. And so he's getting jealous of Jesus's fame and he's looking to reject Jesus as well. Now, it's interesting what Matthew does in his, his uh, narrative here is he takes us in verse 3 through verse 12. He gives us a flashback. So the death of John the Baptist has already happened, but Matthew wants to note the death of John the Baptist. So picture you're watching a show, right? And all of a sudden it goes, we're going back in time. That's what happens here in verses 3 through 12. He takes us back to the story of John the Baptist being beheaded. Aren't you so glad you came to church today to hear about John the Baptist being beheaded? But here is the story. I'll read through it, and then I'll try to explain it to you so you can see what's going on here. It says this in verses 3 through 12. For Herod, and again, we're going back in time, for Herod had seized John and bound him and putting him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. And when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, and his disciples, John's disciples, came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So here's the story. Herod the Tetrarch, as we find in verse 1, Herod is the son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, we met him in Matthew chapter 2. Remember what happened in Matthew chapter 2? The wise men come. They're talking about this king that has come. And what does Herod do? Herod has all the babies, two years old and under, killed in that region so that he can wipe out whoever may be this baby that is supposedly the king of the Jews. This is his son, all right? So Herod the Great, just a little side story on him. It was said of Herod the Great that it was better to be one of his pigs than his sons. Why? Because the guy was paranoid. He was jealous, so he would have sons killed. It was not good to be in Herod's family. So he had 10 wives. Herod the Tetrarch comes from the fourth wife of Herod the Great. And when Herod is dying, he splits his kingdom up into four different sections. So when it says Herod the Tetrarch, the word Tetrarch is fourth of the kingdom. That's just saying he was over fourth of the kingdom. All right? That's not his official name. If you're studying it, his official name is Herod Antipas. So if you're reading and you come across Herod Antipas, this is the same guy as Herod the Tetrarch. So let me try to tell you what is happening in this moment. So Herod the Antipas marries a gal from Arabian, an Arabian princess, and it was a political marriage. 
Dad put this marriage together to try to win favor. So they're married. Herod Antipas marries her, but then they have some issues. Herod Antipas had a brother who was murdered by his dad. He has a daughter, this guy that was, I'm not going to try to say his name. One of his, Herod's son had a daughter named Herodias, who is mentioned in verse 3. Herodias married Herod Philip, Herod Antipas's half-brother. So technically, Herodias was Herod Antipas's niece as well as his sister-in-law. You tracking with me? No, okay, good, because I'm not tracking with me either, all right? So Herod Antipas falls out of love with his wife who's from Arabia and in love with his brother's wife. She falls out of love with Herod Philip and falls in love with Herod Antipas. Clear as mud, right? Like we got this going. So what happens is John the Baptist hears about them divorcing and trying to get together and John the Baptist as a prophet calls them out and says that's not the right thing to do. So because he called them out, Herodias is ticked and she tells Herod the Tetrarch to put him in prison. So he puts her or puts John the Baptist in prison. Come around Herod's having a birthday party. And a birthday party is the wrong word for the party that was going on here. This is a party of debauchery. Drunkenness, drugs. You have this daughter of Herodias dancing before the company. She's probably 12 to 14 years old in front of men, only men. And this, so you can take your conclusion to what's going on here. This is not good, right? So she's dancing. Herod is pleased by her dancing. And so he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Whatever you want. She's 12 to 14 years old, right? She doesn't know, so she goes to her mom. Her mom's mad at John the Baptist and says, go back and tell him to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so he goes and gets John the Baptist beheaded and brings it to this girl who goes and gives it to her mom. Verse 12, and his disciples, John's disciples come, they take the body, they bury it, and they go tell Jesus. Now we're back into the story, all right? So that was a flashback. So really the context is verses one and two. Herod hears about the fame of Jesus and he thinks because he did this atrocity to John the Baptist that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life. So now Jesus hears about it in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, why did Jesus head out of town? Why did he not go and say, hey, that was wrong of you to do that here? A couple of ways we could go with this, the scriptures don't tell us. One is Jesus is obviously heartbroken. John the Baptist laid the groundwork. He was the one who prepared the way for uh, uh, Jesus. But the text would probably lean towards the reality that Jesus went to a desolate place because if Herod is thinking 
The fame of Jesus is growing, and this John the Baptist that I beheaded has come back. Who's next on the chopping block? Jesus is, right? And so Jesus, more than likely, is going to a desolate place because he knows his time hasn't come. That the crucifixion is not to happen now. And so he's withdrawing because he knows that Herod is rejecting him. And just like he had John the Baptist beheaded and the fame of Jesus is growing, he knows he's next on the chopping block. And so he goes to a desolate place to be by himself. But look at verse, the end of verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Jesus on foot from the towns. And he went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So here's Jesus getting away because he knows he's next in line to be killed and his time hasn't come yet. And he's alone in a desolate place and the crowd hears about it and they come. And what does Jesus say to them? Leave me alone, man. Don't you know my death is about to happen? Don't you know I'm next on the chopping block and it's, this is a tense time, just lost John the Baptist? No, what does Jesus do? Jesus has compassion on them. We would say the word today, Jesus' heart went out to them. So as he sees them, his heart goes out to them and he begins to heal the sick and teach them. Verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Captain, obvious, right? Like this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So the disciples are really genuinely trying to help Jesus here. Like, hey, the end of the day is coming. It, it's time for people to go get some food. They're hungry. It's amazing what you're doing. Your words and your works have authority, but we need to send them to get some food. Jesus replies to them and says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now you can imagine, all right, let's go to the moment with Jesus and his disciples. Disciples are just trying to help Jesus out here by saying, hey, let's cut this off, send people home so they can eat. Jesus says to them, they don't need to go away. You're going to give them something to eat. Their minds, like ours, would have started running. How are we going to do this? We don't have enough money to feed. We know we're going to find out there's over 5,000 people there. We don't have enough money to feed them. We don't have enough food to feed them. How are we going to do this? They're becoming aware that this is a greater need than they can meet. And they, they need somebody else to step in to meet this need. So they just bring Jesus what they have in verse 17. They said to him, we have five loaves here and two fish. It's like, all right, Jesus, you said we're going to give them something to eat. Here's what we got. We got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says in verse 18, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And this was a tradition that the Jewish people have that they see a blessing before they eat. And so Jesus says the blessing before they eat. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. Isn't that interesting? He told the disciples, they're going to feed the people. And so when they bring Jesus what they have, 
Jesus blesses it and begins to pull apart the bread and the fish and hands it to the disciples so that they, in turn, can go and give it to the crowds. Verse 20, and here's what happened. And all they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples keep coming back to Jesus, and every time they come back for more food, there's more food. And I love it that Jesus just doesn't feed them. He feeds them till they're satisfied. Till it's like, all right, had enough. I'm full. I'm satisfied. And it says, and they took up after they'd finished feeding everybody and they're full. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. So they brought Jesus five loaves and two fishes. And at the end of the day, each disciple walks away with their own basket of food. Verse 21, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus, in this moment, feeds the 5,000 plus women and children with five loaves and two fishes. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is showing us that he has all authority over heaven and over earth. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is that Jesus can take five loaves and two fishes and he can feed 5,000 plus people because he has that authority. And what the disciples are beginning to do is they're beginning to recognize who Jesus is. That what he has called them to do, he will supply for them to do it. When he says, you're going to feed them, and they say, I've got five loaves and two fishes, they realize they can't do it in and of themselves. He's going to have to work a miracle, and Jesus works the miracle. And Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people because they recognized that they couldn't do it on their own. They recognized that they needed Jesus. In this text today, we see two responses to the authority of Jesus. There is a rejection of Jesus and there is a recognition of Jesus. If you'll look at verses 13, 53 through 14 and 12, you see these two rejections of Jesus. The hometown rejects Jesus. Herod rejects Jesus because of his fame. And I would propose to you today that the rejection of Jesus comes from two places as we see in the text. The first is the rejection of Jesus comes from their familiarity with Jesus. Because they ask the question twice, where did this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? Verse 56, where then did this man get all of these things? They're almost so familiar with Jesus that they can't see who he is. I see this a lot in students and kids that grow up in church. It's almost like they're too familiar. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but it's almost too familiar with Jesus because you've been through the Awana program. You can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You can sing that in your sleep. You, you, you know all about Jesus, but the head knowledge hasn't got to the heart. 
This is what is happening in this moment to his hometown. Yeah, they know, have an idea, but they're choosing to reject his authority, his words, and his works. You see, we don't wake up one day and say we want to reject Jesus. Rejection of Jesus is a slow downward descent. It's when we make statements like this. I know the promises of God, but I need more. I know what the promises of God say, but that's just not quite enough for me. I know what the Bible says, but I feel. This is us beginning to almost reject. It's like, I I know the promises. I know the word. I know who he is, but it's not quite enough. Almost too familiar with Jesus. How do I know when I'm heading down this path? I I would say from the text, it's when you begin to doubt the words and the works of Jesus. That's those two questions. Where did this man get his wisdom and mighty works? Where did he get the power to speak his word and and his works? Where did he do these things? It's, It's when you begin to doubt the words and the works of Jesus that you are heading down this path of rejecting Jesus. Listen, doubting is a part of our lives and there's going to be moments when we're going to doubt the words and the works of Jesus. But may I remind you, doubt is a hotel we visit. It's not a home that we live in. It's it's not a place that we put our stakes down and say, we're going to live in doubt. No, we may have seasons where we go through doubt, but we don't live there. We live with confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. Think about a relationship. In your relationships, if doubt is the center of your relationship, do those relationships typically last? No would be the answer to that. Because if I doubt a friendship or a relationship, what typically happens is my heart is I move away from them because it's like I don't know that I can trust them. And so I begin to reject them because it's like I I can't put my full trust in them. Here's maybe a way for you to think about it. Ruth and I have liked each other, that's my wife, Ruth, since she was 11 and I was 12. Went to a small church together. Her dad came the pastor of our church when I was 12 and she was 11 and we started liking each other. And Ruth would say that from the moment she saw me, she knew that she was going to marry me. And I, I understand why. <laughs> no, just, just, just joking. That, that, that's wrong to say, right? Like, <laughs> That's not true at all. But for me, I didn't quite feel that way at 12 years old, right? I wasn't quite having those vibes with, with Ruth. And so in, in our liking of each other through middle school and high school and college, I was the guy that struggled with doubt. And so what I would do in, in an unhealthy way is I would break up with Ruth quite often. And I would say, you know, the Lord just, I need to spend more time with the Lord, right? It was always put it on the Lord. So can I... This is a side dating advice. If you're dating in here or you're thinking about dating, don't put it on the Lord and say, the Lord told me to break up with you. Just say, I don't really know if this is going to work out, right? And I got to work through it and figure it out. And then if, it, if, it, if you feel good about it, go back to it. But don't stop putting it on God saying, he's the one that sort of made me feel like I shouldn't date you, right? Like just, just say, it's me, it's, it's on me. So that's what I would do to her though. 
And so I doubted our relationship. And so it's like, I need to break up with her so I can figure out if she's the one for me. And we went through this cycle, poor Ruth. We went through this cycle throughout our dating years of just ups and downs and doubts. And and it was always me, It, it wasn't her. But I'll never forget the moment that that doubt dissipated in my heart. I was a senior, going into my senior year of college, and I get a phone call that my mom and dad have been in a serious car accident, and my dad's being life-flighted to the Fort Worth Hospital. My mom's going in a different hospital. We're not sure your dad's going to survive. Those are the words that we were told. So I go to Topeka to get in a car with my brother to drive to, to Fort Worth, Texas. We're bawling our eyes out. We can't talk. We're driving as fast as we can to Fort Worth, Texas. And all of a sudden, my phone rings, and it's Ruth. And at this time, we're not dating each other. We're doing separate things. And I answer the phone, and she's like, hey, this is Ruth. I just feel like the Lord wanted me to call you because something's not right. And at that moment, all doubt went away. It was like, she's the one. For me. Right. Now listen, in 21 years of marriage, have there been moments that I've doubted? Sure. Have there been months where we go through and we're, I don't like you and she doesn't like me and we work through that and we're upset with each other? 100%. Because marriage is difficult and hard and relationships are hard, but we don't live there. Right? We may hang out at the hotel for a few days trying to figure it out and figure out why we're feeling this angst towards each other, but we don't live there. We go back home together. And the same thing is true in your relationship with Jesus. If you're hanging out in doubt, it's going to end up not well. At some moment, you've got to stop doubting and you have to start believing. You've got to start trusting the word and the works of Jesus so it won't be said of your life, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You see, we had talked about doubting in Matthew chapter 11 when John the Baptist is doubting that Jesus is the king. And he comes and sends his disciples from jail to go to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus tells his disciples, John's disciples, go and tell John what you've heard and seen. Go tell him the words that I'm saying and the works that I've done. And Jesus says this in verse six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't trip over me. And what we're seeing in Matthew 13, 53 through 58 is people tripping over Jesus because they've lived in doubt. And I would encourage you, if you have grown up in church and there's, there's this familiarness with Jesus and you're living in doubt, I would encourage you, yes, get with a pastor, get with your Antioch group leader, get with a, a, a spiritual figure in your life that you trust and work through those doubts, but don't live there. Don't live there. Not only do we see that rejection comes from this familiarity with Jesus, but I think it also comes from fear of Jesus. This this is what we see in Herod. When he heard about the fame of Jesus, there's a sense of which he was fearful because he had power. 
And he didn't want Jesus to have that same power and popularity that he had. Here's what I found. Most people outside of the Christian faith, one of the things that keeps them from coming to Christ, the reason that they reject Christ is because of the fear that he becomes the Savior and the Lord of their life. Because we love being the center of our lives. And so to hear that I am a sinner and I need a savior and I've got to trust in somebody else besides myself to save me, that's a difficult thing to do. And Herod fears the popularity of Jesus and he doesn't want Jesus to be more popular than he is. And so he's got to, beginning with John the Baptist, begin to move towards Jesus and the rejection of the message of John the Baptist is the rejection of Jesus' message because it was the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Fear comes from the reality that you're not the king of your life. It is hard to follow Jesus because in following Jesus, you're not the God. You're not the Savior. You're not the Lord. And pride in our hearts, like Herod, wants to be, we want to be the center of our lives. And so we reject Jesus out of fear of him being the center of our lives. But there's not only this rejection of Jesus, There's also this recognition in the feeding of the 5,000. They see, the disciples particularly see, that Jesus has all authority. No food, no problem. You have five loaves, two fishes, 5,000 people to feed. That's no problem for Jesus. So this recognition of Jesus comes from the awareness of our need. The disciples came to Jesus and said, I hear what you've told us to do, feed these people. But we only have five loaves and two fishes. What are they saying? They're aware that they don't have it in and of themselves to feed all these people. And recognition of Jesus comes from the place that we see our need for Jesus. In our need is where we see Jesus for who he is. Has there been a moment in your life where you've realized your need for Jesus? Has there been a five loaves and two fishes kind of moment in your life where you're standing there before Jesus and it's like, I know what you've told me to do, but this is all I have. And if you don't do something, it doesn't happen. Has there been that moment that you are aware of your need for Jesus? In this moment, the disciples saw, they recognized their need for Jesus. For me, this moment was August 8th, 1993. It was on a Wednesday night. I was in my waterbed. Remember waterbeds back in the day? I had a waterbed. I was in my waterbed sleeping, or trying to sleep, I should say. And all of a sudden, I just, and I'd been doubting my salvation for some time. But all of a sudden, in that moment for me, the light bulb came on. All of a sudden, I saw what I've been missing for so many years. And that was in that moment, I recognized my need for a Savior. 
I recognized that my five loaves and two fishes weren't enough to do what God had called me to do. I recognized that my five baptism certificate wasn't enough to earn my way into heaven. I realized in that moment that serving at the church wasn't enough to earn my way into heaven. I realized in that moment that there was nothing good in me that all I could present to Jesus was Jesus' righteousness. All I could present to to Jesus was his work for me on the cross. And I knew in that moment, my five loaves and two fishes weren't enough. And only through Jesus Christ could I enter into heaven, into a right relationship with God. And that night I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I came to the Lord and said, I have only this. And he responded by saying, here I am. Give it to me. Have you had that moment in your life where you've realized that apart from Jesus Christ, we have nothing and that you need him? I know we live in America and Americans don't need anything. But you know, the, you know that's not true. You know that your greatest need is a right relationship with God and nothing you bring to Jesus can fulfill that apart from his righteousness, apart from his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let's not be arrogant Americans. Let's humble ourselves and come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we do need you. We can't do what you've called us to do apart from you. You have to intervene on our behalf. You have to give us your righteousness. You have to give us your strength to live the life that you have called us to live. As Jesus' identity becomes clear, decisions are going to have to be made about what they believe about him. And the same thing is true for us today. The more we see Jesus for who he is, his words, and his works. We must decide, will we reject him as king of our life? Or will we recognize our need for him and put our faith and trust in him and put him in his rightful place in our heart as king of our heart and life? Father, thank you for the power of your word and your works. And I would pray this morning for anyone listening, whether in this room or online, that has come to that moment in their life where they, they must decide. Are they going to reject the words and the works of Jesus? Or are they going to start like the disciples recognizing what Jesus is doing and who he is? I pray that today, Lord, they would go from rejecting to recognizing. That they would go from death to life, from darkness to light. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us if in our lives we have maybe lived in doubt rather than passing through doubt. I pray that you would help us to get back in your word and see your works. And that, Lord, we would 
live a life of confidence in you so that it will not be said of us that you didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief, but because we're trusting in you, Lord, that you would do many mighty works in and through our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that is sufficient, for your love that is never changing. I pray that we would live from those realities. Thank you for giving us a seat at the table, even though we were once enemies of you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.